All right, hello everybody. Welcome to the Garf Network. I'm Eric. And I'm Matt. And tonight we have a very special guest with us. Matt, why don't you tell us who we got with us tonight? Ladies and gentlemen, this gentleman needs no introduction. He is a legend. He is an icon, Mr. Joe Bob Briggs. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Oh, at Garf. <laughs> Did you think about the acronym when you called it Garf? <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, it's it's the George A. Romero Foundation. I mean, it's, you know, George's legacy has been far-reaching for the past 50-some years, and it's touched all of our lives in different ways. I mean, Eric and I knew each other because of George. Okay. And, and I think it's it's folks like George that got me introduced to you. you know? Did George want the A? Did he want the A in his name? Did he sign his name that way, George A. Romero? He, you know, it... it I've never heard anybody in the horror world calling George A. Romero. It's I think always... it was around 2000 that kind of started with the dawn of DVD. I think the A kind of came. Yeah, I, I really. always knew him to sign. Maybe there were name. too many George Romeros in the Pittsburgh <laughs> phone book, and so he wanted to be George A. Romero. <laughs> I mean, that could have been. I, you know what? I think sometimes it's just the level of reverence and respect. It's George A. Romero. I think so we have to ask Suzanne. That's, yeah, that's a good question. If, for if, if what when he added the A, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I've always known it with the A, and it just feels like George A. Romero. It just carries some weight to it. But uh, we're here at Monster Mania. Yeah, it's, it's Monster good. Mania in um, what town? Hunt is it? Valley, Maryland. Hunt Valley, Maryland. <laughs> just out of Baltimore. I want to Let's say Baltimore, Baltimore, but it's Hunt Valley, Maryland. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, this is a great show. You guys are having a great time. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, uh, lots of people have. Uh, uh, I, actually, I think this is the first convention I've been to in a couple of years where it seems fully attended, right. where uh, people have actually gone back to normal. Um, I mean, because, I mean, there are people here that drove in from uh, from Pittsburgh, which is quite a drive, and from, um, you know, Vermont and Virginia and, and uh, other parts of the East Coast. Um, so... Um, you know, I think uh, uh, horror conventions are are back, and everyone was talking about how much they miss, you know, the camaraderie and the the uh, communal feeling of being at the uh, at a horror lover's place. You know, especially people who live in a home with no other horror lovers in their home. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> uh, so they need this. Yeah. Getting a call. <laughs> right, we're just getting a call, folks. Live TV. Uh, well, on the subject of George Romero, I mean, how how did you first get introduced to to his films? Um, well, I think just like everybody else, I saw Night of the Living Dead um, at a fairly early age, and um, that was. I mean, you have to understand that in the in the dark ages of horror where, that I'm from. Um, we didn't necessarily know who made the films. We didn't necessarily follow the director so much. We knew Night of the Living Dead. We knew the titles. We knew Night of the Living Dead. We knew Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, really, we didn't even know that John Carpenter made Halloween, but he was sort of the first one where we knew his name. We knew the director's name. 
but even after George made um, uh, Dawn of the Dead, if you go back to the old Fangoria magazines, uh, who are you reading about? Tom Savini. <laughs> You're reading about Tom Savini's uh, effects, right? Um, no, it, it's like nerds like me learned the names of the directors, but in the in the dark ages of horror, the really the hate what we call, what we call today the heyday of horror. Um, uh, these were um, uh, like like dime paperbacks. I mean, they were for mass consumption, and so uh, uh, you they didn't have a shelf life uh, until VHS came in. You didn't really have any any way to rewatch them, except occasionally there would be some crazy theater in town that would that would bring back a horror night at Halloween or something. And so you would have your memories of these films. Um, so, but but uh, I knew that that um, there was nobody before George Romero in terms of modern horror. He invented modern horror. I mean, um, in fact, uh, there was what we now call the zombie movie. There were zombie movies before 1968, before Night of the Living Dead, but it was a completely different kind of movie. It, it was a movie. It was a movie about Haitian voodoo. Uh, all of them were that way. And you had a, you had a master uh, uh, manipulator voodoo doctor in all those movies, and he would create uh, Walking Dead slaves for himself, and they would be liberated by some. Sometimes they'd be liberated by the missionary, who came to <laughs> who came to Haiti, uh, and that was what zombies were. And so. George Romero invented zombies. I mean, he invented what we think of today as the zombie, which is somebody who actually comes out of a grave and is animated and vicious, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and so, uh, you know, a lot of times they say, well, you know, it wasn't the first zombie movie. There was White Zombie and there was I Walked with a Zombie and there was, you know, all these, well, two, two different things, apples and oranges, you mm -hmm. know? And so... All of these things we have today, like the Walking Dead doesn't exist without George Romero. Mm -hmm. It doesn't exist without the, the preface of all of the George Romero dead movies. So, um, uh, you know, so in that sense, he was a pioneer. I think he was an accidental pioneer, just like all of these, all, all of these early horror directors. They didn't grow up at five years old saying, I want to be a horror director. They, they wanted to make movies. And so um, uh, it ends up being the easiest way into the industry is to make a horror movie. And that's what happened with George Romero. That's what happened with uh, Toby Hooper. That's what happened with John Carpenter. He didn't set out to be a horror guy. Mm -hmm. um, um, and I mean, the first guys who set out to be horror guys were the Friday the 13th guys, mm -hmm. you know? And so what do you have there you have the weakest formula series you know of, of the of the of the big franchises you know um wes craven didn't set out to be a horror director he was an english professor <laughs> so so um but it all goes back to um uh george romero because he set the template for uh not just zombie movies but for indie indie horror films that you make it on on their own outside the studio system, outside mm -hmm. the distribution system of the time. Mm -hmm.
when when you think of George, what's the first movie that comes to mind? Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, because it was so, um, because it changed everything. It it, it 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 just created a whole new, a whole new world of indie horror that did not. I mean, if you go two years before Night of the Living Dead, you're talking about William Castle films. You're talking about. Uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane? The most innovative series you have before that is is the Edgar Allan Poe series by Roger the Roger Corman films, yeah. but those are all uh, traditional Gothic horror. You know, they're in they're they're in old castles, they're period pieces. Um, there's a type of the the horror film is not modern yet. It's still it's still Dracula and Frankenstein and and old castles and 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 so suddenly in 1968 you have now you have youth horror you have you have modern settings um you have young people you don't they don't have you don't have to always have vincent price and uh, christopher lee <laughs> you know you can have young people starring um and all that is the all, all that is the things that um that one movie, Night of the Living Dead, changed. It changed the whole spectrum. And it, you had films after that that were done in the traditional way. You know, you had Hammer films um, searching for, you had Hammer films searching for an identity after that, actually. Mm -hmm. right. They were never able to make the transition. And so by the mid 70s, Hammer films is gone. It's gone. You know, costume, costume drama horror is gone. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and everything after that, you know, then, then the Amer—it's sort of like the Americans take over from the British, because all the stuff, all the early stuff, even if it was an American film and had some British element or had some European element, uh, after George Romero, that's not true anymore. John Carpenter is like uh, uh, bedrock, small town America, USA. You know, it's Haddonfield, Illinois. You know, there's no, you know, there's no Dracula Castle. You know, it, it's um, uh, and so that's what he did. He 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 brought um, he brought horror into a new era. I don't think he was necessarily aware of what he was doing. He was just an incredibly inventive um, uh, filmmaker mm -hmm. uh, who knew what made sense at the time. You know, and and then he he expanded on that as the years went on and. Um, uh, even 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 when he was making, you know, non-horror films, they had these these uh, contemporary horror elements in them. You know, right. So, so um, yeah, pioneer, the, yeah. the pioneer. It's interesting, and, and out of all the elements, you didn't mention the violence even once, which was considerably escalated. That's true. Um, um, the adding adding explicit. Uh, violence to movies had actually started uh, with uh, A-list films. Mm -hmm. It had started with um, films like um, The Wild Bunch mm -hmm. and uh, Bonnie and Clyde. And uh, you had things that were considered straw dogs. You had films that were considered, um, uh, you know, they wanted to give them X ratings because they had, because at the time they were considered so violent. Uh, and so, you know, horror filmmakers or low-budget filmmakers 
looking at an opportunity saying, hey, you know what? If you go in this direction, nobody messes with you. They mess with you if you go in the direction of nudity and sex. But they don't mess with you if you go in the direction of violence. Um, in Europe, it was the opposite. If you went, if you went in the direction of violence, you got censored. But if you went in the direction of nudity and sex, you could do anything you wanted. Um, but but um, over here, you know, you had the low, 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 low budget guys like Herschel Gordon Lewis who um, were just like putting anything, any any shocking image they could put in a film, uh, and you know they would have an opening weekend and then everyone would have seen it and then they wouldn't go back and then you had people like um uh george romero toby hooper who were using um uh shocking images of, of violence uh in in uh, new ways to tell a story mm -hmm. and so um you know you 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 uh uh in the in the new freedom that emerged from the 60s uh, you start, you make Fangoria magazine possible because now everybody wants to do it. Now everybody wants to be it. Mm -hmm. It's like, it still amazes me how many people want to be a special effects. Uh, you know, I, I want to do gore special effects. I, that's my career path. That's where I want to go. And I'm like, okay, go to, go to Tom's school in uh, Pittsburgh and learn how to do that. <laughs> and, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and you know, and, and and hope you can get a job. Be really, really good at that because there aren't that many jobs. <laughs> but um, but there's so many. There's 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 so uh, there's so much interest. The idea of the idea of of a of a subcategory of a subcategory in the production design department of a movie becoming a place where you can be a superstar. That was also created by George Romero. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, you know, the the special effects makeup guy uh, on a on a, any film before 1970 is a very low level job, you know. Mm -hmm. And then horror comes along, and that becomes a superstar job. You know, you become a you become a celebrity from doing mm -hmm. that job, mm -hmm. and so it changed. So many of the things that that. Um, George Romero and that generation of filmmakers uh, did um, change the whole way we look at films. What, when we talked to George Romero, he's, you know, I said, what was the person you thought of? He said, and then like that. What do you feel is a criminally underseen or underrated work of George that more people need to be talking about? Um, I think, um, I, many, most of, George gets his due for all of his films, I think. I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, maybe it's the circles that I move in, but, but uh, I don't think anybody says, um, you know, that's a, that's a terrible film. I mean, it's like his fans get disappointed when he goes in a different genre direction. Mm -hmm. So... Um, you know, Knight Riders has has uh, has its devotees. It also has its its uh, critics. You know, mm -hmm. but um, I think George always gets a fair hearing, and any any director has has uh, uh, disappointments, if not outright failures. But 
um, but but I think I think Georgia's fans actually give him a break uh, just because it's him. Mm-hmm. And so um, I don't think any of his films have been neglected. I mean, it, he made, I mean, the, the fourth and fifth um, sequel to Night of the Living Dead yeah. uh, mm-hmm. were underfinanced, mm-hmm. but they weren't bad, mm-hmm. uh, in my opinion. Yeah. So um, um, I, I really think uh, he's really, he had a, an, an interesting um uh, he, he had a fascinating um, uh, life. He had. Um, I always wondered. I always wondered why uh, the Walking Dead didn't attach George in some capacity to the Walking Dead. Simply because, as soon as you see those zombies in the very first episode, you say. Well, the reason we know what's happening here is because of all these previous movies that we've seen. If those movies didn't exist, we wouldn't know exactly what the rules are here mm-hmm. in The Walking Dead. I mean, I, I, I don't know if they do, but I would think the creators of the comic book and the original series would, would both say, uh, yeah, it all goes back to George Romero. It all goes back to um, the Dead trilogy. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, but um, I guess you know everyone thought that kind of that world that he created had entered the public domain at that right. point. Mm-hmm. It was it was no, it was no longer associated with him specifically. It was bigger than him. You know, it had entered the entered the public domain, and and so you know here we are in the you know I think you know this year will be the. Four thousand nine hundred fifty-seventh episode of The Walking Dead. Because... <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned a couple times earlier about how, and it just got me curious about how you know movies would come and go, and you'd never see them again. You might catch them on TV, or but were you a collector at all, or what, how did you go about seeing movies again? No, I was never a collector of movies. I mean, before VHS happened, you had to be alert and eagle-eyed. And when the when the repertory theater brought the movie back to town, you had to go watch it. There was no way to... I mean, yeah, you could go to some film libraries in L.A. or um, uh, there was there was one in New York. Uh, and... and Conceivably, you could go in there and you could pay a fee, and they would run it for you on on a sixteen millimeter projector or something. Mm-hmm. But you but you really had no way to. Uh, uh, film critics really had to know their business um, because there was no way to rewatch movies. VHS is what made it possible, or Betamax. If you, you know, <laughs> like we ran out and bought those immediately, you know. Uh, that's the first thing that made it possible to own uh, media. And so um, uh, that led to an explosion in film criticism, but that was still nothing compared to the explosion in film criticism that happened uh, when the internet happened. And that was still nothing compared to the explosion of film criticism that happened when uh, streaming happened. Mm -hmm. And so today, that's why we have... uh, more film critics than we have movies 
<laughs> so when a movie comes out, uh, you can instantly read a hundred reviews if you want to, um, uh, because um, uh, the accessibility of not just today's films, but all the films of history. I mean, there's there's rarely a film that I can't find, even if even if um, even if the research people tell you that's not available for streaming right now. It's like, yeah. <laughs> well we'll 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 come up with a way you yeah. know? and so and so um that's um that's quite a difference um so i mean a, a filmmaker like george romero um is making a movie with the assumption that once it's played off around the country it's gone mm -hmm. uh, and that was true of most horror movies um uh, really up until very recently, you know, uh, once they were played off, they were gone. Now the horror audience comes along that wants to see all of those old movies because mm -hmm. horror fans are like that. They don't want to just see movies from 2021. They want to see movies from 2011, 2001, 1921, <laughs> you know, so, so, um, so the, the, the ability to stream all this stuff uh, opens up this whole rich history. It's like revealing the history of something immediately, you know, uh, that was hidden before. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so now you can, that's, I mean, we, we on my show, The Last Drive-In on Shutter, uh, we frequently go back into the 70s, 80s, 90s, and uh, re, re, uh, reinterpret a lost film. So, and sometimes it's because it's a not that good but weird film. And sometimes it's because of a weird, of a, of a, just a strange film that, that was overlooked, that was, that was actually pretty good. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we, we did a film called Demon Wind, which is, no one's ever going to say it's a great film, but it's kind of a fun film to watch. And within three months of, of us uh, bringing it back, uh, they were using it at midnight shows, mm -hmm. you know. And so some of these films can have a life, uh, you know, they can like disappear for 30 years. And then suddenly someone, some, some curator at Alamo Draft House or someplace, you know, um, says, you know, this film is neglected. I'm going to present this film. And it starts to have a, a, a second life. Uh, with a whole new audience, you know, and um, uh, that's something that's never existed before. I mean, you, you didn't have you didn't have films making a comeback <laughs> in the in the golden age of Hollywood. That never happened, you know. Uh, in fact, they they usually, if someone in the film had died, if one of the principal players had died, they would never show the film again. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. Um. We're talking about curation of films, and how I'm curious how how that changed from moving from TNT to Shutter, as far as like what you were allowed to bring on the air. Did you have you have more freedom now? Well, no. I mean, we're allowed to bring on anything, but um, TNT had this vast library that had been, uh, Ted Turner had gone and purchased all these films. Uh, 
Ted Turner was the pioneer of film libraries. He recognized um, as early as the 1970s that, that much of the future of TV would be old movies. And this was at a time when the studios didn't put much value on their old movies. In fact, they let a lot of them uh, vanish because the original negative was not taken care of. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, Ted Turner went and bought uh, uh, a bunch of film libraries. He bought everything MGM owned before 1982. Um, he bought, um, uh, there was a book this thick uh, of all the films that uh, Turner Entertainment owned. And um, uh, so I had a lot to choose from. Plus we could license other films, plus nobody cared about horror. So you could, um, you could basically just call up the studio and say, we want to show this one and they give you a price and you run it. Mm -hmm. There's no way I have not, never any problem with licensing. Um, now fast forward to, to, to the present and everybody wants horror films in October. You know, all the networks want, um, uh, a lot of these films are licensed long-term by, um, uh, various uh, networks. The franchises that were despised in the 80s and 90s are now beloved. Mm -hmm. And so they suddenly, you know, um, I used, when I would publish a book, I would call up uh, Paramount and say, um, I want to use this photo from, from uh, you know, Friday the 13th, part six. And I would say, yeah, sure, use it. And then and then today, if you call them up, they would say, yeah, that'll be $4,000. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so uh, you know, the landscape has changed as far as what's, what's considered valuable. So we license what we can license. And, you know, a lot of times they'll say, yeah, you can license it for like two months. <laughs> you know, yeah. and like, well, we don't want that. We, we want people to be able to access it later, you know. And so um, it's a it's a shifting world of, of, uh, you know, what can we get and how, how long can we use it? Um, and so a lot of times what we really want, we can't get. And a lot of times what we didn't think that we wanted, but suddenly it turns up, you know, we, we get that, we grab it, you know? So, um, uh, it's not as also, you know, I, when I was at TNT and on movie channel, I was on 52 weeks a year. So it didn't matter if we if we had uh, week weeks off weeks. You know, we're coming back next week. We're always coming <laughs> back next week. It doesn't matter. You know, whereas uh, you know the shutter season is ten weeks. I mean, we sometimes do uh, specials, mm -hmm. but it's basically a ten week season. Well, we, we can't afford to to disappoint people many times in a ten week season. So. <laughs> We, we have to be really careful about what we get and, and how we present it. And when we, when we do have turkeys, and maybe, maybe I think they're turkeys, but, you know, my director doesn't think they're turkeys or, <laughs> you know, we have disagreements about what constitutes a turkey. Um, then we come up, we try to come up with innovative ways to make it interesting anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's what you're supposed to do if you're a host, if you're a horror host, you know, you're supposed to, Let's look on the good side, people. <laughs> <laughs>
it, is it harder to make certain films interesting now versus the TNT days? Because there's there's been a lot you've done on Shutter that I've never been exposed to. I know when you did Tetsuo the Iron Man, my buddy Will texted me. He's like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever. And I was like, <laughs> I have no clue what's going on. And, yeah. and I'm like, what is happening? And I was enthralled by your additions to the film and everything. But I mean, is there See, a difference? Tet Tetsuo the Iron Man, I, I was always aware of that film, but I would have considered it an art house film. I never would have considered mm -hmm. it a horror film. I wouldn't even have called it a horror film. Um, my director, who is... 35 years younger than me, um, uh, regarded it as part of the horror, the body of horror work, you know, and he was like, oh, got to show Tetsuo the Iron Man, and I'm like, well, are, what, are we going to art house? No, you know, <laughs> horror, horror people, you know, they're going to, they're, they're going to dig it, you know, and I'm like, I don't think they're going to dig it, you know, I don't think the same person that loves, um, um, Freddy Krueger is going to like Tetsuo the Iron Man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we, you know, we're, we're going to throw a wide net. We're going to be all, you know, we're going to do all these things in horror. And so, and I, I trust him because he's, he's been right more often than he's been wrong, you know. And so we did Tetsuo the Iron Man. I'm not a fan of Tetsuo the Iron Man. Um, uh, I understand the place it has in film history, mostly as it related to the punk movement. You know, and and um, uh, and the things that were going cyberpunk mm -hmm. uh, that were going on at, at that time, early '90s. Uh, it was influential in many ways, but when we do that, we have to get a little bit more academic than I like to get. Now, I can mm -hmm. I can get down into the academic nitty gritty with anybody if they want to go there, you know. Mm -hmm. But I don't. I I I get all these. Um, you know, there's a lot of professors now that write books about horror, and I get them. They come in the mail, and they put me to sleep. And <laughs> I don't want to go down that road very far, you know. And so, um, uh, and so, yeah, we do try to, like, have all kinds of horror, all different kinds of genres, and we'll occasionally go there, but I don't want to go there too many times. <laughs> um, can you talk about... Um when you first started you know, doing the hosting and developing your pers persona and how did you come up with that? I mean, at the time we basically had, you know, Elvira or Sven Gulli type of host. How, how did you develop uh, the job off persona? Um, well, I'm, I'm basically a writer. So I started out with a newspaper column called Joe Bob goes to the drive-in. And the reason I invented Joe Bob goes to the drive-in as opposed to just doing straight reviews of stuff is that, these review these movies that I that I loved that I wanted to spotlight were not reviewed at all in newspapers. They were considered uh, trash, and they weren't. They were considered beneath the dignity of a daily newspaper. And so I had to create some kind of structure by which I could get them into the newspaper. And so by using a persona and using humor and using um, uh, a, a and, and by sort of burying them in a place where the editors wouldn't read it. <laughs> um, I was able to get the, get the reviews into the paper and establish a following. And by the time the editors realized it was in the paper, it was too late. You know, and it, mm -hmm. it established a, a, a following.
following. And so uh, I was able to get it syndicated and, and, and moved on from there. And then when I went to TV, it was just an extension of that. It was just, um, it was just, um, you know, we're going to get down and dirty tonight. And uh, we're going to watch these movies that your mother doesn't want you to watch. And so that was kind of my standard, you know, movies that your parents don't want you to watch. That's what that's what I reviewed. Mm -hmm. And so and movies. And at the time that I started, those movies were almost exclusively at the drive in where I lived, which was in Texas. Uh, if you lived in a very urban area uh, like New York City or San Francisco, those were at Grindhouse, you know. So the same movies that I was reviewing at the drive-ins in the South was were playing at on 42nd Street in in New York City. They were playing at in uh, uh, what they call the Combat Zone in in Boston. They're playing at in the uh, um, uh, downtown LA, you know, on Broadway in LA, which was a very dangerous place to visit in the 80s, <laughs> and um, uh, and so um, these were movies that were simply not reviewed. They were reviewed by the trade publications, by Variety, by Hollywood Reporter, but they were just reviewed in, in the sense of the way, um, um, you know, if you're, if you, if you're making uh, pork and beans, you know, there's a trade publication that reviews your can of pork and beans compared to the other guy's can of pork and beans. And so, basically reviewed it on an economics basis, you know. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was I was doing these reviews and there was one other guy um, who did a fanzine out of New York City who was reviewing the movies and uh, that was it. There was no nobody cared about these movies. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, and and so it was it was easy to develop a format. There was no format. <laughs> you know, there was no way, there was nobody who reviewed them, and so um, uh, those early the, those early reviews were often the only review. The, re the, the reason I became friends with Roger Corman is that he noticed that his movies were being reviewed at all, uh, uh, other than in the other than in the trades, and so um, he invited me to come visit his studio and. Uh, LA and I got to know him and a lot of the things that 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 I that developed into the style of, of the newspaper column I was writing were principles of filmmaking that Roger Corman uh, told me about and so um, Roger Corman was um, uh, he is I mean he is making he's making movies now mm -hmm. he's 95 I think um, but he's still making movies. He's like, making three, four movies a year. Um, uh, but he was uh, uh, he was an early pioneer of almost all of what we call the exploitation genres, uh, starting in the early fifties. Uh, science fiction, you know, for twenty years, science fiction was all low budget. There was no such thing as studio science fiction there's no such thing as high budget science fiction it was all uh cheapies uh, mm -hmm. he was the uh one of the early guys in wild youth movies so biker movies uh so all all of this is what i was reviewing and um nobody else was reviewing it so whatever rules i made up those were the rules 
<laughs> so what is it about the drive-in in a movie like the we you know the drive-in will never die has become a lexicon that a lot of horror fans say obviously because he is so what is it about a movie being shown at the drive-in that kind of has given it a different weight to it well oddly enough and this doesn't make any kind of logical sense but if everybody is sitting in their privacy of their car watching the movie in the outdoors they feel closer together as a community than if they're sitting right next to each other in chairs in an indoor theater now why would that be i i think i think what it is is it's it's like taking your living room to the drive-in you know it's um, um you don't really want to be touching the person that you're having the communal experience <laughs> with, you know, which you have to do in many indoor theaters. Uh, but you want to be with other people. And so the drive-in has the best of both worlds. It's this communal experience. It was always, it's half about the movie, and it's half about where you're watching the movie and mm -hmm. the other parts of the experience. And so you could take your kids, for example. It doesn't matter how much they scream at a drive-in. They're just yeah. screaming inside your car. You know, uh, you could take your pets. Yeah. Uh, you could take your whole household <laughs> to the drive-in and other people would be bringing their households. And it was also the, the other reason that made it such a democratic place is that the drive-in was always on the edge of town. So the people drove out from the city and they drove in from the country. So you had the urban people and the suburban people and the country people all mixing together in one place which you normally don't have. You don't have people here in downtown Baltimore mixing with the people that live out in the horse country. Um, you know, uh, it's two different worlds. But at the drive-in, it's all the same world. Now, some people come in a Ford Focus and some people come in a, in a Mercedes, but, but ultimately they're all in the same place doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know? Because yeah. I because I, I know recently you guys were up at the Mahoning Drive-In in Lehigh, uh, which is you know one of my absolute favorite places to go. And a friend of mine, Jeff, had his film Terror Trip show there, and it was like a badge of honor to have your film shown at the drive-in. So where do you see the future of the drive-ins? Well, in COVID was very very good to drive-ins because uh, there was a, a several months when the only places you could watch first-run theatrical movies were at were at drive-ins. All of the box office grosses were drive-in grosses. Uh, and many people who had not been to a drive-in in 20 or 30 years went back to the drive-in. Yep. And uh, they were amazed by the, by the uh, purity of the experience. And I think we'll continue to go to the drive-in even after uh, it becomes safe, you know, 100% safe to go to indoor theaters. But um, uh, the, the future, the, fut the, the, the thing that threatens um, drive-ins is always um, uh, growing populations because as the population grows, land becomes more expensive. And so the huge expanses of land that drive-ins use uh, become valuable. And so eventually they, they get sold for a condo development or an office development or a Walmart. I, I think Walmart has been built on the on the ruins of more drive-ins than any other yeah. business in America. Uh, and so um, 
the drive-ins that have survived are drive-ins in either economically depressed places where the city's not growing anymore um, or uh, places that were never that urban to begin with. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of drive-ins um, in Pennsylvania, for example, but are they, are they near, are they in Philadelphia? No. Are they in Pittsburgh? No. But they're in all the places between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. And so um, uh, there's actually three other operating drive-ins within um, 30 minutes of the Mahoning drive. Mm -hmm. um, so um, um, I think, and, and now there are even people building new drive-ins. Um, and so um, I think the, uh, the, the future of the drive-in is secure right now. Uh, people have been predicting the, the end of the drive-in since the early 60s. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how many years is that? That's 60 <laughs> years of saying, well, the drive-ins, the heyday of the drive-in is over. You know, I, you know, here's one of the last drive-ins. It'll, you know, probably probably won't go another generation. And then where where do we end up? There's still drive-ins. There's still drive-ins. It never it never ends. But um, uh, you know, it's 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 this enduring American thing, and it is an, it is American. It doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. You know, there's, there are drive-ins here and there uh, in other countries, but uh, nothing like, it's nothing like the tradition that, that we have here. The marriage of the cinema industry and the automotive industry <laughs> is like, that's, that's two things Americans love. You know, add some hot dogs to that and you got, you know, that's, that's, that's pure Americana. <laughs> um, how do you see the traditional theater uh, business model? Is that something that's going to fade away? or The traditional theater of a theatrical release? Mm -hmm. um, as long as the theater provides something more than just the movie, uh, theaters can still thrive. Um, uh, my buddy Tim League, who, who founded um, uh, Alamo Drafthouse Theaters, um, he knows the secret and that is provide a whole evening experience, not just a movie. So he provides food. He provides alcohol. He provides, <laughs> he provides um, uh, uh, special guests. Sometimes the actors who are in the movie are in the theater. Uh, he provides all kinds of special events uh, all the time at his theaters. And his theaters, uh, up until COVID, I mean, COVID closed all indoor theaters. Mm -hmm. But up until COVID, um, he was uh, constantly expanding. You know, one of the few constantly expanding um, uh, uh, theater chains. Uh, I think that's the future of exhibition. People still want to go out. They still want to leave their homes. They do not want to watch every movie on their phone. Mm -hmm. They will watch movies that they don't care that much about on their phone. They do not want to watch um, the latest Marvel movie on their phone. So I think the traditional uh, chains, like the AMC theaters, the big ones, the Lowe's theaters, I think those chains are, are inextricably tied to blockbusters. Mm -hmm. If they don't have blockbusters, they die. But the, but the smaller chains, the art house chains, uh, I think they will thrive because they're going to offer unique experiences with uh, live events combined with 
theatrical with the with uh, movie events mm -hmm. and and they're going to offer a much more relaxed uh, viewing environment um uh, like i say when they serve food and drink it changes the whole experience and uh, so i think there is a future a future for um uh, theatrical it's just going to be we're not going to be in 3,000 seat auditoriums we're going to be in uh, 150 seat auditoriums with a lot of amenities and a lot of special events mm -hmm. so. what I mean because obviously you're you have a second life with shutter I mean obviously we grew up with you on on cable and and everything we were kind of touching on it earlier what is what has always been on your wish list to to cover and present to people that you've never been able to things i've been able to present um well we presented um the texas chainsaw massacre on uh shutter um i tried to present it on every previous show i'd ever had and it was on the, it was on the band list you know you couldn't show it on on cable tv um there are a lot of i would like to go back if, if i had my druthers um, I would really go back to the 1930s and 1940s and present a lot of these forgotten uh, films from those eras because uh, they are neglected. Uh, the problem is you, can, you can't get programmers to get behind black and white films. Yeah. And you especially can't get programmers to get behind black and white films where people speak with accents that are not considered modern accents, you know. And so a lot of those films are a tough sell. They're a really tough sell. Even famous ones like Todd Browning's Freaks. I tried to get Todd Browning's Freaks on TNT every year, every year. But and we owned it. Mm -hmm. It was out. It was sitting there, <laughs> and they didn't even use it. They didn't run it anywhere. And it was like it's just sitting there. They 100% own it. And I say, here's the one I want. And I say, no. And and they say it's black and white. And it's from the 1930s. People are going to surf out. As soon as they see the black and white, they're going to surf to another channel. We're not going to let you show it. And so they never let me show it. I've never hosted it. You know, um, I would like to host it now. But I think now um, I'm not at a place that owns it anymore. <laughs> so I don't know how to get it. I don't know how to go and find it. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think uh, the last really uncurated part of the horror history is really the early part uh oddly enough i mean that's what scholars go and look at all the time but as far as the general public uh, uh they don't they don't know a lot of those films and mm -hmm. i i would like to you know explore that um uh, 30s and 40s there were a lot of horror stuff but it was they were b movies uh, some of them were just 55 minutes long Mm -hmm. uh, they were they were on the pro, they were on the programs with uh, big budget movies um, uh, because in the depression they had to have you had to have an A movie a B movie a newsreel a cartoon and probably a juggler and a mine <laughs> you know because you wanted to keep people in the theater for like six hours mm -hmm. uh, uh, and and so and so you had all these B movies that made, were made really really cheap that's the definition of B movie. Is that it was it was uh, the cheap movie that went with the good movie. Went with the A movie. And and so a lot of those were horror or were horror films, and um, they haven't really been re-released in any major way. Mm -hmm. I think that would be a great book. 
just a <laughs> compilation of because uh, I, I now I'm looking for some recommendations. <laughs> I mean, how does that differ with you know they don't want to go back to the older movies, but you know you guys have done the VHS specials, you've done Cannibal Holocaust. So how did those films get there? But the the, the pioneer films, the early films, the eighties, the eighties are special. Now, why are they special? I don't know. I don't know. I, I lived through the 80s, and, and I thought there was a lot of crap in the 80s. But, um, but uh, the 80s have an aura, and I think the aura is created by the fact that anything goes in the 80s. You can make any kind of movie. Uh, VHS had just started. You had all these mom-and-pop uh, video stores all over the country. They needed content, and so a lot of low-budget filmmakers said, Oh, you want content? Oh, you'll take anything? Okay, uh, you know, it's Monday, I'll have the film done by Thursday, and then I'll, you'll have it next week, you know? And so a whole lot of stuff was made in the 80s, and there were no rules. Uh, there was no, uh, there, you know, uh, everyone says, you know, that they know the rules for the slasher. Well, they don't really know the rules for the slasher, because you look at the, you look, you go slasher by slasher by slasher, uh, all of them have different have have a different set of parameters. Um, the slashers today are formulated. <laughs> if somebody says they're making a slasher, we kind of know what they're making. But uh, in the '80s, that was not true. You know, you had a lot of movies that today we would just say, "Oh, it was one of those slashers." But it but it would have some element that made it special. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you have a, you just have this world of um, exploration in the '80s um that um you don't have today and i don't know why we don't have it today because it's cheaper to make films today than it's ever been in history mm -hmm. and uh, these film students they come out of film school and they love horror and what do they make they make a documentary about a horror film you know why didn't they just make a horror film <laughs> you know like, why why you know how many how many documentaries have you guys watched about George Romero himself? I mean, it's probably it's probably a hundred movies about George Romero or George Romero films. You know, okay, all those guys who love George Romero, why aren't they making original horror films? You know, we're, so we're not in a we're not in a period of great experimentation in horror. We're we're in a period of looking backwards. That's called decadence. Mm -hmm. That's called a decadent period in horror. You know. Uh, it's great that the George A. Romero Foundation is um, uh, involved in these programs to uh, encourage first-time filmmakers. Don't let them make documentaries. <laughs> make them make horror films. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> well, I mean, they're going to they're going to really do that with Salem Horror Fest. Yeah. Um, you know, starting October first, Salem Horror is showcasing a lot of George's films, but also a new crop of new independent horror films which is you know the big purpose of the george romero foundation so if you guys are getting a chance go to salemhorror.com and check it out but that actually leads me into a question what is it if you're sitting down to watch a film and let's just use horror as an example what is it about a film that you're looking for that's going to grab you that's going to make you really pay attention to it uh just the traditional elements of great storytelling which is which is uh you know uh uh, suspense and characterization mm -hmm. and so and so um, uh, 
characters that are easily identifiable that you care about and um, uh, suspense element that keeps you watching. And so, um, I mean, we, ha- we, we also have an indie film festival. We just started it this year called Mutant Fest mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. Uh, that was part of Joe Bob's Jamboree at the Mahoney Drive-In. And um, uh, it's for films that are made on extremely low budgets. And um, uh, we had uh, we had some great films that were made for extremely low budgets. What what did they have in common? The storytelling was there. The the uh, the script was there. Mm-hmm. The the uh, um, you could make mistakes on the, in the, on the production side, and the story was still compelling enough to carry the film forward. And um, I would say if there's one thing lacking uh, overall in indie film, it's uh, quality of screenplays. Uh, a lot of times the, the only thing wrong with the, with the film is, is the script. And the script is the thing that doesn't really cost the filmmaker anything. But the filmmaker goes into this, these projects. The 22-year-old filmmaker goes into the project writing the own, his own film because he wants to direct. There's very rarely been a screenwriter who's able to write a compelling script before about the age of 35. And so, I mean, they, it's like their careers are generally littered with scripts that weren't quite there. And then, because you can direct when you're 16, if you're if you're a a, 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 a genius, mm-hmm. writing the writing part. First of all, screenwriting is the hardest form of writing. It's harder than novels. It's harder than expository writing. It's harder than uh, uh, just about anything except maybe iambic pentameter poetry or something like that. You know, and so you're starting with the hardest form of writing. You're trying to do it on your first script when you're 22 years old. You're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. You should have partnered with somebody who has, is seasoned mm-hmm. and and has written a compelling story that you can then direct when you're 22. But you shouldn't try to write it when you're 22. There have been a few cases in history where that's worked, uh, and there. Uh, but look at guys who who you think. Um, uh, did it really, really, really young, and um, Jordan Peele, thirties. Mm-hmm. He's in his thirties. He's mm-hmm. not. He's not twenty-one. You know, and so, and so, um, uh, uh, that's that's what they do. They go they go into production with weak scripts. I don't know what to do about it. They just just to say, hey, you know. You're going to spend money on the camera. You're going to spend money on the actors. You're going to spend money on everything else. Maybe spend money on a script. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> instead of saying we don't need one. <laughs> Why well, I never I never thought about that because it's you mm-hmm. hear about the directors and the acting and it's right. and everything else, but the the script that's that's interesting because I. Yeah. I because so much focuses on the director and then everything gets done. And you're like, well, the story wasn't there. Exactly. And I was like, they should have stopped before cameras rolled and went back and are we Polished solid on the yeah. script? That's right. I do seminars where the filmmakers come in and they say, you know, they're like almost apologetic where they say, 
we, we, you know, um, I know that the film has problems, uh, Joe Bob, but we didn't have, uh, we didn't have that much money and we're in a small town in the Midwest and everything and said, well, actually the only problems your film had are the things that didn't cost any money, <laughs> which, <laughs> which were the, which were the things that are solved at the pre-production stage before you ever turn the camera on, you know, <laughs> And uh, that, that seems to be the constant um, uh, reason for, you know, when you go to an indie film festival and you see a lot of weak films that are not quite there. They're not quite there. They look good. They have some good actors in them, you know, but they don't have the story value. And, um, I mean, it's, it's the number one, it's the hardest thing to do, but it's also a thing that doesn't cost anything. Right. I mean... It, it, if 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 you if you can't write and you're trying to make a movie, then yes, it's going to cost something. But that's a good thing, you know. So what if you have to pay five thousand dollars for a script? It's better than, <laughs> you know, it's it's better than the alternative mm-hmm. of filming with no script, which is what a lot of them do. <laughs> so, yeah. We pretty much reached the hour point. Yeah, uh, we want to thank you, especially. Coming from Suze, our founder. Thank you so much. I am uh, very yeah. pleased to be here at Garf, <laughs> and I, I I support all your efforts. I'll I'm I'm a Garf. Can I have a Garf T-shirt? You have Garf Absolutely. T-shirt. Yeah, we'll, we'll get you a Garf see T-shirt. What you do. I yeah. want a Garf T-shirt. You know, I want to be involved in your in your uh, indie film promotions, and uh, and uh, uh, and I'm I'm really excited for what the uh, Romero Foundation, and I don't know if you still have a relationship with the University of Pittsburgh. I know at one time, mm-hmm. at one time there was going to be, you're going to put all George's papers yep. in you. They have the archive. Yep, yep, the archive. So, there. combination of Garf, University of Pittsburgh, and all the alumni of of George Romero's movies, um, you know, from uh, Tom Savini to Greg Nicotero to, yeah. um, uh, you know, all the guys who have come out of Pittsburgh, Tom Atkins, everybody mm-hmm. who's come out of Pittsburgh, uh, you should be able to do a lot of good in the world. Um, uh, and uh, and I'm, you know, I want to support that however I can. We appreciate it. We appreciate it. And I know uh, next week we're going to see you back on TV with your, your Halloween oh, special. Oh, yeah. Uh, Halloween Hoedown is uh, October the 8th um, on Shutter, And uh, we have two... Um, very esteemed. I can't announce the titles of the movies, okay. and I can't announce the guests. But we nice. have. Uh, um, it's going to be a surprising Halloween hoedown. I'll put it that way. Maybe, <laughs> maybe finally Halloween three. Maybe, maybe. I mean, because we are here with Tom. Don't get Tom your hopes up. Don't get your hopes up. Look, look. I I'm going to keep all my fingers crossed because Tom Atkins is is definitely a, a national treasure, and we need to get more spotlight on him as much as we can. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm avoiding Tom. He's he's here at the uh, at the uh, convention, but he's 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 already vowed to beat my ass. I, I, I've seen the scares he's been giving you. Comments, the comments I've made about Halloween three. And so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to tangle with Tom. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do want to remind everybody before we get out of here, uh, the broadcast from the Garth foundation are brought to you free of charge. And we want to make an announcement actually on October 1st, the Garth will launch its first annual fundraiser to build the George A. Romero scholarship fund. 
This will enable us to continue to permanently support students and future filmmakers, notably those studying at the Douglas Education Center, Horror Studies Archive at the University of Pittsburgh, Steeltown, and many others. <clears throat> Excuse me. The George A. Romero Foundation will match all donations up to $15,000 to meet the goal. Please join in our mission to enable independent filmmakers to find their voices by contributing from October 1st through 31st. And you can do that at the foundation's website at georgearomerofoundation.org. Uh, so definitely stop on by, check out what we're doing, and donate if you can. And again, that's from the October 1st through 31st, and we're matching up to $15,000. So, yeah, so thank you guys very much for your support. We obviously, Joe Bob, again, thank you so very much. Um, thank you for your time and, and, and all your insight. You know, all right, happy to be here. We Appreciate we love everything that you've been doing. We we can't wait to see you next week on Shutter. It's it's definitely a I stop what I'm doing on a Friday night mm -hmm. kind of thing to watch you guys. I know you guys are going to be. I appreciate that. I love the fact that we have this uh, live feed audience that mm -hmm. comes in right at nine o'clock on uh, on Friday night and 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 tweets with us all night and, mm -hmm. and and does the social media. It's 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 something that I've never experienced in. Uh, in TV, in my in my many centuries of working in TV, <laughs> and um, uh, it's wonderful. We just have this group of fans who are who are diehard and uh, uh, and and gather together in large groups to, to watch the show. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's one thing that I love about this this show at Shutter. Yeah, I mean, You're a ringleader. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just like George, you bring people together. I mean, it's it is. It's, I have lots of text conversations on Friday nights when you're on, and we're talking about films, and and we're watching you. And, yeah. Hey, you know, we start thinking, okay, what's next? I really hope it's this. I really mm -hmm. hope it's this. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the tech, you're like, oh no, it's not this. Or someone's like, yeah, it was this. <laughs> so it's it's it, it is a party. You know, we sit on on Twitter with Darcy and you know read her tweets, and we're you know we're just enjoying what you have. I know. Um, yeah, well, we like you to come, even if we make you grumpy with what we show. <laughs> you know, I've, I've never been grumpy, but I scratch have... my head sometimes. Going, <laughs> okay. What am I no, watching? We, we do have we do have we do have people that, that tell us when they don't like what we show. You know, but 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 we're we're the most inclusive family ever because we we. We, we want you we want you to stick around even if you're pissed off <laughs> <laughs> what's he gonna say next what's he gonna show next so, no shutter next week i know um my friend ian's got some pumpkins on your on your set for you guys next week he did some some stuff for you guys so i'm so excited for that um he made our pumpkins the card pumpkins yeah oh wow yeah okay. yeah all right yeah so cool. we're excited for that and and again for the for everybody watching thank you so very much for tuning in the george a Romero foundation for the mutant fam that have, have tuned in thank you guys so very much we love you guys we love you joe bob and darcy thank you so very much we'll see you on shutter next friday night and we'll see you guys here again on the garf network thanks